The whole pandemic has, it's been devastating for food services, no two ways about it. But at the same time, it's been fantastic for retail. And, and what we're seeing is this incredible uplift in demand and use of, of premium seafoods in particular in home. It's great that we now have this forced environment where people are suddenly you know, rediscovering their kitchens, rediscovering their stoves, um, and rediscovering seafood. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. During this series, we focused heavily on the cost and impact of this pandemic on the hospitality sector. The owners, the chefs, the sommeliers, and the farmers and growers. But what of the suppliers? Those that help join the dots between our producers and the nation's chefs. John Sussman is owner of Fishtails, a seafood consultancy company that has been the connective tissue between fisheries and chefs for over three decades. John, how are you going? Well, it makes me sound old, and I am. <laughs> well, you know, I actually met you over a bowl of mussels about 20 years ago, so I guess it makes me a bit old too. <laughs> Indeed. I still remember that. Um, mate, I guess before we talk about the impact that COVID-19 has had on your role within the industry, I guess, can we have a look at what you actually do and how you connect these fisheries and bring them to market and connect them with chefs and what you actually do? Sure. I mean, uh, I've been asking that question of myself for over 30 years, actually. Uh, and when I find the answer, I'll let you know. But no, in, in, <laughs> in reality, the role, I guess, that Fishtails plays is to, as you introduced, is to, is to connect catches with cooks. Um, and having had a sort of been hanging around the industry for such a long time, um, both industries, actually, both food service and and fisheries, um, I guess our role is to interpret the opportunity that a seafood might provide and render a solution for the end users, um, be they a chef or, or a consumer. So it's really being able to understand all of the elements from water to plate. Um, my passion is, which is I know a hackneyed cliche, but my real love is, is, is food on the plate. Uh, and so our approach tends to be working back from how a seafood might work on a plate to what needs to happen to it in the water. And over the three decades plus that I've been working in the category, I've been lucky enough to pretty much work in every element from catching to cooking. And as a result, um, you know, feel that I have a degree of empathy for, for all of those different elements and, and of course, have you know, my entire, you know, cache of mates and customers and friends and suppliers and clients are all food related so um, we've got a pretty broad network of of, uh, of chums that can help in that process now before fishtails uh, you had other entities and um, the flying squid brothers was one of them and I know you're credited as sort of changing the landscape of live seafood or fresh seafood to to restaurants in Australia's culinary history uh, do you have any stories from those days of trying to bring seafood to market? And the challenges you had? Yeah, look, it was it, it was a really fun time, Huck. It was um, you know it was the the mid eighties. Um, there was this explosion of food appreciation in Australia at the time. I mean, I'd been lucky enough to um, to grow up in Adelaide and go to to uh, to, to uni and, and work in restaurants in Adelaide. 
um, at the real heyday, at the real high, you know, the high watermark, I would almost suggest, of the Adelaide culinary scene at the time. Um, you know, working with the likes of, you know, Chong Lu and Phil Searle and a young Tim Pakpoi. And, um, you know, from that process, there was always this sort of real um, – I, I, I found it really exciting that here were people that were really committed to, to food and in particular to seafood. And um, so Flying Squid Brothers was kind of a natural extension of, of that process. Um, and in the early days, we were doing some pretty madcap things. We'd, we'd hire planes and fly over to Coffin Bay and, and take the seats out of the plane and, and stack them full of lobsters and fly to Alice Springs and run around pubs selling them. Um, and then, of course, actually, the Flying Squid Brothers started with with Coffin Bay scallops, and and that was that was fantastic. I mean, and it was uh, a really unique purple shell, purple row, queen scallop um, that was hand harvested. Um, we used to uh, mate and I purchased the license to to harvest these these scallops in Coffin Bay, and and. Um, I'll never forget the first day of you know spending seven hours in the water and heading back to Port Lincoln and with a with a with a harvest of nearly half a ton of scallops and being offered I think it was one hundred and fifty dollars for the for the total catch and you know this was August in Coffin Bay and the water's pretty cold and you know just the idea of spending the whole day in the water to earn you know effectively you know thirty or forty bucks each didn't make a lot of sense so. We uh, we transformed the business from selling to a processor to you know splitting the scallops onto the half shell ourselves, um, and fly to Sydney to run around in a in a hire truck and and sell them to to both not only the um, the Asian restaurants but also to the emerging Neil Perry's and Steve Manfredi's and Jenny Ferguson's and Gay Bilson's and Tony Bilson's of the world, um, and then fly home and do the whole thing again and. You know, as luck would have it, that coincided bang on with the um, sort of the stock market crash of, of the, the mid-80s. Um, but it also coincided with the um, explosion of, of, as I said before, of, of you know, food in, in Australia. Now, I think we need to just go back a bit because a lot of people won't know that you won a pretty special award as a young man in Adelaide in the front of house. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I guess um, you know the fact that I get so cranky with restaurant service is is born of the fact that I actually have had a long history in in, in food service. And as you said, uh, <clears throat> when I was a student, I actually won the student waiter of the year competition in South Australia, which which <laughs> was um, I'm not sure whether it was right up there with winning a. Um, the meat traffic, the meat tray at uh, at the Port Adelaide Football Club on a Friday night, but it was something along those sort of lines. Um, but I did. I actually, it was it was a lot of fun. I was working in a restaurant called Air's House at the time, which was uh, a, a famous old school maroon velvet dinner jacket, tarantula bow tie outfit, where there was a lot of table cooking. And uh, and as as a result, I sort of learnt the learnt the craft of Gerardon service from. Uh, from uh, Lenny Corrales, one of the old legendary Adelaide waiters, and um, that put me in good stead to to take out the prize of student waiter of the year in 1983, which, uh, yeah, it's uh, something that I don't really sort of lean on too much these days, but wow. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that with everyone. I really appreciate that. 
Um, <laughs> Matt, I just wondered before we get into you know the massive impact that this has had on you and your role in the industry. Like, why seafood? I know that you know talking to you and you know we worked on a book together, the Australian Fish and Seafood Cookbook. Um, and, you know, where you share all of your knowledge um, for Australia in that book. Um, but I know that your father, Dave, had a, an influence on you with seafood. But, you know, can you tell us why why seafood? Yeah, look, I, I guess I was, I, was, um, I was pretty lucky as a kid growing up with my old man, Dave, who was a sort of a cross between sort of Keith Floyd and Indiana Jones. And, and every weekend and every holiday was all fishing related. He was just a, a, a chronic mad fisherman. So... You know, Easter's would be up at Loch Nine on the River Murray catching Murray cod, and and um, Christmases would be at Karakalinga on the south coast of South Australia catching King George whiting, and spring always meant fishing for crabs at Ardrossan on the York Peninsula. Um, yeah, it was. I was lucky enough to to have you know been you know sort of mentored, if you will, in in terms of seafood by this this absolute mad fisho. Um, and despite the fact that my mother was arguably one of the worst cooks ever to breathe, um, <laughs> who could do things with lamb and vegetables that you know shouldn't be made public, um, my father had this incredible passion for for, for seafood and and was actually a, a dab hand on the pans. And you know he could put an abalone through the mincer on the back of a boat and pan fry a abalone patty, um, or he could boil up a, a crab and and hand pick the meat, or he could you know sort of beautifully fill it a butterfly fillet of King George Whiting and leave it boneless uh, and pan fried in, in butter that came from my uncle's uh, dairy farm. And, and it was it was pretty extraordinary. So I think it's, you know, the, the lesson in that for all of us is to make sure that our kids eat well uh, and are inspired by food from an early age. Now, uh, the impact that this has had on you, I wonder if you could just um, run through sort of you know the role the role that you play and and what has happened to you with the pandemic so these days i mean you know i, I do, we, we sort of flying squid brothers was was of the time and of the place and you know from the from the mid 80s through to the mid 90s it was it was a great time to be in seafood and seafood was emerging as the protein of choice by the upwardly mobile chef um, and so, yeah, time and place, it was, it was fantastic. Post the Flying Squid Brothers, I, I managed to have a fairly exciting life working in variously, you know, the Japanese tuna auctions and, and in the French fish markets and, and around the world working in, in seafood, um, which, you know, I know this is a long way to get back to the point of the question here, but these days I am back upstream a long way from the process of being directly involved in distribution. Although, as, as you know, sort of we work together closely, spend a lot of time talking to and working with chefs to understand where their heads are at, where their pans are at, where their expectations are at in relation to seafood. Um, and also spend a lot of time working with catchers and growers, bringing their seafood to market. Now, a lot of those guys may have their sales split between domestic sales and export sales but predominantly the the area of the seafood business that that i work in is in premium uh, australian new zealand seafood which clearly has been you know sort of mostly targeting fine dining or food service in particular and this current situation has had a fairly significant knock-on 
to not just chefs and restaurateurs, but distributors and catchers and growers. And so it is, it's been a, this massive transformation of, of business, but you know, it's not all for the bad, I think. So could you paint a picture of the situation for you? I know, I know you've, I mean, the history is long with your influence of, you know, companies like Kinkawooka Mussels and Hiramasa Kingfish and Cloudy Bay Clams, you know, all of these um, seafood brands that have come to light because of, because you've been behind them and, and helped them get to market. Um, can you give us an idea of, you know, what the impact is? Because seafood consumption has dropped dramatically with the closure of restaurants. Yeah, look, it, it, it has, but on the other hand, it's also dramatically increased at retail. So, um, you know, the whole pandemic has, as we've heard through your series, your wonderful series, has been, um, you know, it's been devastating for food services. There's no two ways about it. But at the same time, it's been fantastic for retail. And, and what we're seeing is this incredible uplift in demand and use of, of premium seafoods in particular in home. So I dare say there's plenty of people that are cooking fish at home for the first time in, in years um, that have been, you know, eating seafood, you know, happily in restaurants for, for a long time but haven't actually been doing too much with it at home. So it's great that we now have this forced environment where people are suddenly, you know, rediscovering their kitchens, rediscovering their stoves. Um, and rediscovering seafood, and that's that's really fantastic. Having said that, there is a major and fairly significant issue that we collectively need to address. And I guess, as you and I have discussed, there's been a few things lost in translation through this whole process. And I know that that we we love the hospitality industry dearly, and we really feel for for all of our chums across the category that are really hurting right now. But I think it's fair to say that there's part of the conversation that hasn't been addressed, and that is just how fragile the food service industry is in this country um, and how, in reality, there were a lot of businesses in the food service sector that, that struggled their way through the summer of 2019-20. They were shaky in December. The devastating fires of January really sort of decimated some of the East Coast business and particularly the regional business um, that never really recovered all that strongly in February. And by the time COVID pandemic hit in March in full force, that they were very fragile. Now, the knock-on for that has been that uh, their accounts that may be of June from December haven't been paid. So it makes it really difficult when that concertina effect of the distributor not getting paid and the catcher or grower not getting paid, that really has a significant impact. And as you know, I, I, I kind of, I still don't understand the metric of how a restaurant takes its remit cash on delivery. And there has been this false expectation of the provision of, of uh, open and often um, un, unqualified credit um, for some time. It, 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 I think it's a real issue and, and perhaps out of this is going to become a reframing of, of how business gets done, um, which is something that we all need to address. Do you have some examples of the impact that it's had on, you know, the suppliers and also the producers, given that, you know, they're probably not going to be paid because 
restaurants are closed and don't have any money. So there's invoices out there that will arguably never be paid. Um, but what has been the impact? Well, okay. So let's let's unpack that question a touch. I mean, the first thing is that, yes, there are, you know, it, it, it is a dilemma. And we know that under the current laws, we no um, action can be taken against a bad debt for six months. So there is a quarantine period where I think the, you know, the, the operators that just simply don't have the resources to, to settle their accounts can breathe. But when that is lifted, I can't see there being, um, I, I mean, I, I don't see that it's the responsibility. I don't think, see that it's actually right for the catchers and growers to sort of bear the brunt of, of, uh, of the failing of a business that might be two, three or even four layers above their business. And so I, I think that it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens after things reopen. I, I, I can see definitely a second tranche of failings occur sort of four or five months in, and that's going to be quite devastating. Back to your question about what it's doing with suppliers and, <coughs> excuse me, and in my instance, catchers and growers. It really is creating some fairly significant issues. I mean, we've seen, we've seen prices uh, in the markets in Sydney and Melbourne um, of some items such as tuna and, and, and prawns that I haven't seen in 30 years um, that would barely be above the cost of production in many instances, if not below the cost of production for the catchers and growers. And you sort of think, wow, this is a really desperate time for some of these guys. Um, out of that comes opportunities. So, I mean, you know, some good mates of ours, Heidi and Parvo Walker, from uh, Walker Seafoods in Malilaba, um, you know, out of out of their distressed environment came the opportunity to suddenly put their premium yellowfin tuna into into coals, into the retail environment, and um, the performance at retail is such that I think that there's some you know, ongoing and and uh, long term benefit that's going to come out of out of out of that. So. There is, you know, definitely there is a, a reframing um, of supply occurring and that uh, is not only in terms of supply but it's also in terms of, um, of markets and opportunities. After the break, John Sussman tells us about his hopes for a post-COVID world. You know, we have to be positive. We have to re- you know, not only remain positive but actually look to the future, you know, with a, uh, a level of excitement about what is going to happen. This episode of the Deep in the Weeds podcast is brought to you by The Motley Bunch from the St. John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley. One of the great things about the, um, the Barossa is that uh, when I might go to my local pub in, in Tanunda and I sit and have a beer with 15 different winemakers on, on any given day, it's, and you all just talk, um, you know, talk crap about wine, and, but they're all, all very unique and very different and you know, that makes them a bit of a, a Motley Bunch in a way. Yes, yeah, so a real community sense and no knowledge is, is guarded. I don't keep any secrets with, with my peers and I, I like to think they don't do that either. That's James Leanett, winemaker at St John's Road Winery, who also told us what makes their Motley Bunch so special. Yeah, so Motley Bunch, team of winemakers, a team of growers uh, and a team of uh, varieties. So Mutaro is the glue that sort of holds Shiraz and Grenache together. A straight Shiraz Grenache feels a little hollow in the middle, so we, we use uh, Mataro, which is a beautifully savoury grape variety that uh, doesn't see a lot of single wines produced by itself, but it makes this beautiful blend 
and the high lifted red berry fruits of Grenache, as well as the dark richness of a Shiraz. And you get this really lovely blend of, of the three classic Barossa Valley uh, varieties. The Motley Bunch from St. John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley. What would you like to see moving forward uh, in regards to change, in regards to the relationship between chefs and suppliers and growers to make it more positive for everyone? Yeah, look, I, th- I think it's it's kind of interesting and I reflect on what life used to be back in, for me, in the, in the mid-80s um, where I was operating when I moved our business from from Port Lincoln to Sydney. I was operating out of the back of a retail store in the Sydney fish markets. And every morning there would be a troop of chefs that would be turning up to the front door. There'd be Neil Perry, there'd be Tetsuya Wakuda, there'd be Steve Manfredi, there'd be Jenny Ferguson, there'd be, you know, Pete Doyle, Greg Doyle, Steve Hodges, you know, Mark Armstrong. There was just a sort of like... It was part of their life was to come to the Sydney fish markets every morning or every second morning and pick up what they were going to be using in their restaurant over the next day or two days. Um, regrettably, and, I, and, and, it, and it, this might sound cynical, but regrettably, um, mostly I don't see chefs at the Sydney fish markets unless there's a camera crew or a journalist in tow these days. <laughs> yeah. Respectfully, Huck. Um, but you know, <laughs> Thank you. I, I I'm encouraged by the the opportunity for there to almost be a back to the future where suddenly, there or not suddenly, but where there you know, there'll be chefs will be encouraged to re-engage with produce, and not just for the for the for the Instagram feed, but for the purpose of actually building their menus and serving food that makes sense. And it, it sounds pretty simple, but sadly, it, it has been missing. I think in, in terms of the overheating of the food service business in the last decade, I've really seen a migration from, um, you know, really focusing on the customer to the focus on the business itself in terms of, you know, the, the perception or the or the PR value of the of the business itself. So out of this, I am hopeful that in the search for value and in the changing landscape of supply, that we'll start to see more chefs re-engaging with the day-to-day process of procuring ingredients. I think that's a really exciting proposition. And I think, you know, for, for chefs who who have never even thought of the fact that they could actually do something aside from using an online ordering platform or you know, leaving a message on an answering phone um, for their supply of their product. It, I'd really encourage them to get out and be part of the supply community on a day-to-day basis, if for no other reason than the commercial benefits. I mean, you know, if you build a relationship with a supplier and they are at the, the Sydney fish markets or the Melbourne fish markets or even the, the various wholesalers, primary wholesalers in Brisbane, Adelaide or Perth, If you're in there, if you're active in that process of the selection of the seafood that you are going to use, you will not only benefit from the the knowledge that you will inevitably pick up, but you'll also benefit commercially. Um, You'll know exactly 
what's in season and what the quality is. You'll know the value because you'll be able to see what the arbitrary values are across a number of different suppliers immediately. And I think that that's, I'm encouraged and excited by that that attitude returning to returning to the, well, certainly the premium food service. I, I realise it's not practical for that to occur with large operations and and um, and regional operations to some extent. But, you know, I do think that it's something that needs to be, you know, encouraged and and, and reimagined is, is how supply actually gets to a restaurant. You know, you've always um, been a highly creative uh, person that sort of adapts and evolves quite quickly and tries new things all the time. Um, what else do you see what positives can come out of this pandemic uh, for everyone across the industry? And um, what sort of restaurant would you like to see um, championed or more of? Yeah, look, good, great question, Huck. I think that, that you know, we have to be positive. We have to rem- you know, not only remain positive, but actually look to the future, you know, with a, uh, a level of excitement about what is going to happen. Um, I am really hopeful as I was just saying I mean I believe that there's going to be a renaissance of appreciation for produce and that produce is going to be driven by the value proposition not necessarily the price or the cachet um, you know it's brand values if you will um, I, I, I can honestly you know sort of look forward to seeing great produce being simply handled in a friendly and relaxed environment now that might sound like the first line of any PR release for the last 300 restaurants that have launched in Australia, <laughs> but it's actually quite rare, that, as you know, that, that you come across that. Um, I'm hopeful that this in-kitchen experience of ISO is going to give people a greater level of recognition and appreciation for, for what actually does constitute premium produce and that they are going to really enjoy it even more when they find it being served to them uh, beautifully handled in a great environment. So I, I can definitely see that there's going to be a, um, uh, and you know this is probably going to be imposed on us as well in terms of like exactly what the dining experience is going to constitute. You know, and it's not going to be elbow to elbow. It's not going to be you know sort of the thrust and parry of many of the inner city shops that we've been used to going to, and you know sort of hanging at the bar for an hour to try and get a table out and all the rest of it. I mean, clearly that's not going to happen for, for at least, you know, the foreseeable future. So the experience, the dining experience itself is going to be, have to be a lot more premeditated. And to that extent, I think that there's going to be a lot more respect for both the customer and the food. And I know that sounds kind of trite, but I just think that we had lost our way to a certain extent where form over substance had really become quite the fashion in in food and it's now sort of a back to the future sort of approach to the fact that not only is there going to be less money in the economy but the the whole set of values that surround why you go out i i think is is going to be sort of reimagined and and rediscovered which is a good thing what's exciting you in seafood these days i'm particularly excited by the breadth of experimentation in terms of uh, consumers' engagement with seafood. Um, and, and I'm not with total respect to all of the, um, the avant-garde practitioners of, of, um, of 
air drying and conversions of, of various parts of fish and all the rest of it. Um, I'm actually really excited by seeing people in fish shops buying species that they wouldn't have bought five, ten years ago. Um, I mean, I'm really excited by people having a go with leather jacket, having a go with sardines, having a go with blue mackerel, having a go with, with you know, pippies and clams and, and, and just really sort of getting outside of things that they may have been used to eating all the time. Um, you know, nothing excites me more than to see, um, you know, middle-aged, you know, archetypal sort of, archetypal sort of uh, middle-class people um, getting into sea urchin. I think that's really exciting. Um, you know, concurrently we're seeing a much higher level of, of recognition for quality um, back upstream with catchers and growers. There's an awareness that what we catch and grow here in Australia comes at a very high cost. I mean, restaurants aren't the only places where the, the cost of conducting business is, is high. Um, you know, imagine what it's like in, in the wild catch seafood sector where, you know, your employees are going to work every day, literally risking their lives. Um, the, the cost of compliance and the cost of managing their safety is, is completely unheralded, um, you know, across the industry. And I think that that really, um, you know, it's got to be recognised that, uh, that for those guys, producing premium quality is not just a, um, you know, it, it's not ego-driven. It's actually a function of reality of what they need to do if they're going to get a premium for their product, which justifies them going out to sea. Now, John, apart from my wife, you're probably the person that I've had meals in restaurants the most on the planet um, with, and I know how you like to eat. But, you know, someone who's so influential at Connects Chefs and has so much knowledge on seafood, I wondered if uh, John Sussman had a restaurant, you know, what what would that menu look like and what would the typical dish look like? Wow, that would be setting me up, Huck, because I've been, you know, sort of... <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, it, it would be it would be fish. It would be simple. It would be um, and look, the, I t- absolutely admire and respect craft skills. I have no question about it. Um, as you know, I'm I'm kind of less inclined to the 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 artistic, technically technically savvy, as against the um, tasty, technically savvy chef, um, but. I do think that um, for me, it is about trying to get seafood onto a plate as simply and as quickly and as carefully um, and as respectfully as possible. Um, And I would like to think that I could have a customer that would trust me and would go with me on the basis of not necessarily turning up in, in, um, in the middle of winter expecting to see summer school whiting or or whatever it might be i think that um for me the ultimate experience is particularly dining out and as we were discussing before what this what the next generation of the dining out experience is going to be um i think it's going to it's going to in you know for me it would need to have um you know some excitement some some interest that some interest on the plate um and that would be for me again produce driven um so yeah, do I answer that question? Mm, probably not. Do I want to be a restaurateur? Mm, probably not. Um, <laughs> you know, but 
Um, but do I want to eat in restaurants? Absolutely. And, you know, for me, you know, going forward, I'd really like to see um, people encouraged by the opportunity to, to, to present something that's for the customer, customer-focused. Right, a bit earlier, um, which surprised me a little bit. I've known you for a long time and we've worked on a lot of projects together. Um, you put a real emphasis about what arrives on the plate. And it didn't surprise me because I know you love eating in restaurants and you, know, you love that final, that moment of enjoyment. Um, but you did place some real emphasis on that being the key. So I wonder when restaurants open again and you get to eat in a restaurant for the first time, what would, what would you love to eat? Oh, wow. It's probably <laughs> – what would I love to eat? I would probably, you know, it would be a, a polyglot of, of, you know, greatest hits and memories of various, you know, restaurants that I you know, love and admire around the world um, and I'd want everything at once. I'd want this giant show bag of indulgence that would just give me, you know, the greatest hits and memories from all these fantastic meals over the last however many – decades um but i definitely am as much as i as as much as i was suggesting that it you know it's all about the plate it's actually all about the experience isn't it and i'd really like to think that it would be in a relaxed environment where i'm not trying to suddenly feel that i've got a as a customer unicycle breathe fire and juggle eggs at the same time but i can just relax into the meal <laughs> and really enjoy um being out um you know it's it's not as though i mean you know hey i'm like everyone else i've, I've been doing a lot more cooking i've discovered i've discovered parts of the barbecue that i didn't even know existed um and <laughs> and i've really really enjoyed re-engaging with with food in my own kitchen and uh, and eating at home and and discovering um how eating at home can be so pleasurable um but i am definitely looking forward to that first occasion where I can raise someone else's glass and use someone else's cutlery and, um, you know, be sitting in a relaxed and enjoyable environment, which probably didn't answer your question at all, Huck, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm used to it, John. Um, mate, thank you so much. It's always awesome to talk and, um, look, keep in touch and let us know how things go and, um, it's, I'm so glad to hear people in retail, uh, the consumption of seafood's getting higher. But um, we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot, Huck. I really have enjoyed this. I mean, you know, I just think it is exciting. I think we're going to see a reframing of the Australian food industry um, that is going to make a huge change for the generations to come, and I hope we can all get back and enjoy it. Thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Stay safe, isolate and be well.